Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast from myself, Thomas Flight, and my fellow video essayist, Tom Vanderlinden, from the channel Like Stories of Old, that seeks to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. This week, we're talking about The Northman, directed by Robert Eggers, which is cinema. <laughs> <laughs> I think on Twitter, somebody said the film opens with this volcano erupting, and there's some like, I think it's maybe even another language. Or is it English? I can't recall. Wasn't it Willem Dafoe's character, maybe? I think you might be right about that. But I saw somebody say on Twitter that it might as well be saying, behold cinema in those <laughs> opening lines. Uh, it really comes in with a bang. Why were you interested in talking about The Northman today? It just feels like a movie that begs to be talked about, like wants <laughs> to be talked about. <laughs> Sticking to the story itself, like I thought it was a fascinating tale about really old viking mythology but then it makes it contemporary but it doesn't modernize it so there's an interesting tension there between bringing back outdated worldviews basically and then examining to what extent they relate to us today and i think robert eggers in one of his interviews also said like he wants to explore who we are and where we're going based on where we came from and i think some of the subject matters that i was really interested in is the concept of this kind of raw masculine warrior energy there's a great sense of physicality to this film in the way in the acting in the violence and how this in turn translates to cultural norms the culture of this film kind of bleeds into its mythological structure like there's themes of honor and shame that are tied into the whole quest of vengeance but at the same time it feels almost like it's hard-coded into the religiosity of the world like this this faded sword that's been destined to be used for the vengeance but it can only be pulled out of its sheath at certain moments and at certain locations so there's hard rules to the universe as well that seem to spin the characters around like this threads of fate that's been referred to but at the same time there's also like this cultural aspect of it too because they're not just driven by fate like the characters are not just saying like oh my life is determined i have to do this there's also clear like ideologies that come into play like do we live in shame or am i gonna fulfill my destiny and bring honor to myself and my family and so yeah there's a lot of interesting themes i think that are worth talking about here how about you yeah Absolutely. We've already talked about uh, The Lighthouse, although I don't know if that episode will actually be out before this episode is out. But I'm a fan of the way Robert Eggers approaches film. I think he's doing it in a very unique sense. He's incredibly meticulous. I mean, if anybody listening to this has looked at anything about the behind the scenes of this film or any of his other films, the things he talks about are just this attention to detail and this accuracy and how he portrays the world and this goes back to his first film, The Witch, and just how the language is portrayed, the scenes are written, how things are built. I think what's interesting about that beyond just like an aesthetic set design level is the second layer of that, which is he seems to commit to the world and the stories, even in how he's telling them. You already mentioned some of those elements of what we would think of as fantasy, but like the myth, the religion of the story, and the culture kind of being hand in hand. And there's a sense in which Eggers isn't just sitting from a contemporary standpoint, looking back on characters that are like, oh, they believe these things that are different from ours. The movie, in a sense, believes in those things themselves. Like the curses feel like they have real impact. Like 
I'm not saying there's no tension between like a sense of critiquing if those things are real and we can get into some of that. But Mm -hmm. certainly I think in a way that's unique to him and his approach to film, there's a real sense of like being inside of a Viking myth and living inside that with everything that comes with it. And for me, that's what's amazing about this movie. And that's also some of where maybe it fell short of greatness for me. So we'll get into discussing the meaning and spoilers and all those things, I think, in a little bit. But I was curious, you know, just for maybe if people are listening to this who haven't seen it, do we want to talk about our first impressions about the movie as a movie, since this is one that's still in theaters, probably? Spoiler-free thoughts. Yeah. Before I'd say anything, I'd definitely say go see this movie in the theater, both from the perspective of you want to support this kind of filmmaking, like it's clearly a specific vision, it's clearly very creative, it's unique, and it's just such a refreshing experience compared to like seeing yet another Marvel film or yet another down the middle action adventure or something like that. And purely from that perspective, I'd say go see it, but also because it's definitely worth watching on the big screen because it is truly an epic adventure film. Yeah. I wouldn't say it was perfect. I have some notes. It starts off really strongly, but then there's a part where towards the middle, I thought it was kind of dragging a bit before getting back on track. And then towards the end, I felt it was a bit emotionally confused towards the ending. Like I wasn't sure who was I supposed to root for or not. Like what's the supposed message that I should be taking from this? And that's perhaps in part because it portrays an outdated worldview, one that we no longer really have. Like I guess said it to in another interview that he wants to depict these beliefs that are weren't his or yours or probably not any of us. It's really like this old worldview. And so in that sense, it didn't leave me like immediately satisfied because it is harder to connect to a film like that. But at the same time, I've seen it over a week ago now and I've been thinking about it. And like, the more I think about it, the more I've been itching to see it again. Yeah. So it's clear there is something about it that's very appealing, that has me like calling it back in some way. It's definitely a movie that doesn't let you go after you've seen it. I don't think there's much I would disagree with there or that I could add to that. I felt very similar, you know, in that it's such an impressive work in a lot of ways and it's unique. And I was so excited and glad to be seeing something like on this scale done in in this kind of way, in a really unique way, completely original screenplay. I mean, besides the fact that it's based on Viking lore or whatever from hundreds or thousands of years ago, it's not based on a pre-existing like intellectual property. It's not a sequel. It's not any of these things. So it was cool and exciting to see something big, new in that vein. I loved so much about it. One of the things that stood out to me was like the impact of image sometimes like there's certain images in this movie that are just like stuck and lodged in my brain yeah i was going to add this cinematography as well yeah yeah there's just moments where it's like you contextualize or frame a scene or a myth in a certain way and it becomes potent in a way that like i don't want to say transcends plot but certainly can like be as important as plot at times i think i also had some reservations about it where similar to what you said i think it almost becomes kind of distant or cold or something. There's a level of disconnect there. And comparing this to The Lighthouse, you didn't love it quite as much as me, but like I personally get invested in the emotion of that movie and I understand what the characters are going through internally, Mm -hmm. even though the world is like completely bizarre and there's all this strange stuff happening. And in this film, I didn't quite have that. Like at a certain point, I felt like I disconnected from 
being able to relate to the characters on screen. And I don't think that's for lack of good acting or performance or cinematography or anything like that. I really think it has to do with what you talked about, which is this is an ancient story and we're just kind of like, I don't have these same motivations in my life. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think that's part of what's fascinating about it. So let's get yeah. into that and discussing this world, this story, this myth, and the, the deeper themes there. So spoilers ahead, probably. Yeah, one more thing I was going to add is that I wonder how it's going to hold up under a second viewing, because there's a lot of details here that may be confusing at first, not just about like the plots, but also about the nature of this world and how to interpret this worldview that these characters experience. And I wonder, because the whole plot is basically spoiled in that prologue, like he basically says, we have this quest from the young prince, it's going to end at the gates of hell where he gets his vengeance or something like that. I think on first watch, it was pretty clear, like, it begins with the young Hamlet. By the way, it's a story that inspired Hamlet, apparently, which had me expecting this kind of journey. Like, if you've seen the trailer, you know where the story was going. You have the young Hamlet. Yeah. He has his father, the great king. He returns home and he is betrayed and killed by his brother, Hamlet's uncle. But Hamlet manages to escape and then he sets off into this faraway land. He swears to kill Fjolnir, his uncle, and save his mother and avenge his father. But then we see him as an adult and he's kind of forgotten his pledge or like vow or whatever it is. And he's become this sort of cold-hearted, purposeless, I think it was a type of mercenary, right? Berserker, I think they call him or something. Yeah, he's just kind of a hired grunt, (laughs) screaming uh, wolf character (laughs) yeah and so then he encounters this witch played by bjork and he finds this renewed purpose like oh yeah i made this vow i'm gonna have to live up to it and i have to reclaim like my honor like my family's honor and reclaim my kingdom but then quickly you find out that fjolner actually lost the kingdom he's no longer this great king he's like somewhere in iceland on some small farm herding sheep or something like that So that had me thinking because at that point I was expecting a sort of Lion King-like story, like, oh, he's going to go home to his kingdom. There's going to be this big confrontation, especially knowing it was based on Hamlet. But then I encountered that moment like, oh, wait, it's not going to play out like this. And then I was kind of interested in how it was going to subvert its own sort of prophecy that it laid out at the beginning. Yeah. But then, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that happens, but it does feel like it still ends up in the same place sort of. There was some confusion for me on like, what was this whole journey supposed to be about? Like it seemed to subvert some of its own determinism, but then ends up in the same place anyways. Also with the big reveal, I think in this movie is that when he encounters his mother for the first time or confronts her or confronts her, he tries to save her. But then it turns out that his mother was actually in on the whole assassination and she actually despised his father and wanted to be with his brother and then... I figured, oh, now maybe the film is yet again going to take another turn. Like, is this going to change the whole quest for vengeance significantly? But then it's still, except for instead of saving his mother, he ends up killing her too now. Then it still kind of ends up in the same place. So that was my immediate, like, not so much a frustration, but like mostly my point of confusion. Like, what is the whole purpose of fate in this movie? What is he trying to set up? What is he trying to subvert? What is he trying to, like redeem again or re-subvert if that's a word i'm not sure but there's definitely a core tension in the movie i described at the beginning how like the movie itself believes what the characters believe but like Mm -hmm. 
that's a little bit of an inaccurate statement because there's definitely a sense in which it does slightly poke at that or slightly subvert things because you have things like the sword that won't pull out or prophecies that do seem to come true. Yeah. There's a sense at the beginning where like he's told like, oh, this is your fate. And in a way like that becomes realized to a degree. And to some extent, I kind of like never doubted that that was going to really take place, except in that moment where there's the reveal with the mother for a moment. I was like, oh, this is going Mm -hmm. somewhere different. And then it kind of gets back onto that track. I think the movie's playing with the idea of being in the perspective of these characters. Something that's incredibly present throughout the whole film is like ritual again and again. Like we see at the very beginning, his father comes home and there's like entrance rituals. They go into this hut where Willem Dafoe's character is like this shaman type character and they lap up some kind of hallucinogenic drug and pretend to be wolves and scream and He sees this vision of himself attached to a tree of kings and like all these things and that kind of stuff. There's dances. There's the second vision that he sees from the witch. There's all this ritual. I feel like the movie is trying to at least to some extent, like put you inside his perspective of like being fully bought into this idea that through the power of these rituals that he's experiencing, he's believing like, oh, yes, I am fated and destined to accomplish these things. And he like, yeah, doesn't doubt that he will be able to. So we're kind of subjectively like within that. And the movie doesn't really let us step outside of that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it doesn't exactly all play out the way that maybe Amlet is imagining it will or, you know, I'd have to watch it again to really note to what extent the prophecies are kind of exactly realized. But I think there are some places where it, it doesn't line up. Yeah, there's some suggestions, I think, that the whole concept of Viking faith basically is kind of the whole masculine idea of like, I'm destined to do something and if it doesn't turn out this way, I either interpreted it wrong or I'm going to make my own destiny. Because I remember him saying at the very end, like he's going to cut the thread of faith, like he's going to make his own destiny. And I think beforehand he said like he has to choose between kindness for his skin and the hatred for his enemies. And of course, he's trying to have it both ways. And one thing there I thought was interesting is that he actually makes kind of a rational argument because at that point he has the option to leave with Hannah Taylor-Joy's character, Olga, because she's expecting like she, they have become a family. They they are going to have a child together. And then he says, I can leave with you, but this is after he has killed everything Fjolnir loves. He knows he has set Fjolnir on that same revenge quest as he was on. So he knows they're going to be hunted. Yeah, so in, in that sense, the choice between love for his skin and the hatred towards his enemy is not really a choice in the context of their larger cultural values or in the context of their cultural values in which he knows that Fjolnir is also going to be driven towards destruction. And so I think there's also the element to the way, in this case, men go about, on the one hand, like vengeance and destruction, like I have experienced loss, like someone else is going to pay for this. And at the same time, a sort of entitlement to their place in some kind of larger cosmic plan or some sort of mythological story that they imagine is unfolding before them or that they are somehow importantly a part of. Well, I think the movie is definitely trying to get at some of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But I think the effect becomes also that confusion that you're talking about where like, 
I think, instinctually watching something like this. We want a cohesive narrative or we kind of want the narrative momentum that's been created to be fulfilled. And Eggers is kind of giving that to us, but like not maybe exactly in the way that we want or there's a messiness there that I think is interesting, but also creates that conflict as a viewer where you're kind of like struggling with it a little bit. I think it's because he sets up these very basic archetypes. Like we begin right away with the coming home of the great king. He's played by Ethan Hawke, who is a, I think, is a very sympathetic actor. Like yeah, he yeah. almost naturally invokes a certain like sympathy for himself. So we have this very basic archetype of the great king. We have the son who's still naive and innocent. And then, of course, there's the injustice that's committed against him his father is murdered he's been cast out it's so far it's like the lion king like simba has cast out into the world only except living like hakuna matada he's becoming this berserker like <laughs> what are the opposite um, of hakuna matada yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so far like we have these basic archetypes we have the righteous father who was murdered or slain by the evil uncle and then we have the son, the righteous warrior, who has this calling to this adventure, this quest for justice and righteousness and vengeance. But then it kind of flips this around as it is revealed that on the one hand, like the father was actually not such a righteous king. Like his mother told him he took her by force, like and Amulet himself was conceived out of a forced encounter or forced intercourse. I'm not sure how it works with the arranged weddings in the Viking culture, but... She was actually in love with his brother who was more kind to him and was overall the better man, which kind of flips around the whole emotion of the narrative, I think, because now we are no longer sure, like, what are we supposed to root for at this point? The most interesting moment in the film for me was that that scene where that's revealed, at least in terms of like the story. There's other more like visually interesting or, you know, in terms of how the world is built or the setting or whatever. But in that moment, that reveal, it hits pretty hard. Like up until that point, that's where Amlet, his idea of his destiny is challenged for the first time there. It really strikes at the vision of the world that he's had. And the interesting thing after that is watching him kind of like still cobble and band-aid together a version of the destiny that he wanted or he's trying to still accomplish these goals instead of diving to the core of his beliefs and being like oh this fundamental idea i had about who my father was and how right i was in this situation instead of challenging that and then questioning the entire thing he kind of like struggles past it and pushes past it and is like finds a way in which he can still be the thing that he wants to be or is trying to be or that he's like desiring, which is this vengeance, which I think is a really interesting like look at how often like belief does work mm -hmm. for people where, yeah. you know, we often think, oh, I have these sort of rational beliefs or beliefs that I've reasoned out. And then from that comes what I desire and my you know, actions and all of these things. And I think just as frequently or more frequently, we have these like core internal drives or desires or feelings, intuitions, you know, Jonathan Haidt calls them like moral intuitions about like what our purpose is or what's right in the world. And then we like figure out which beliefs are going to affirm those things or like, you know, allow us to feel comfortable with that drive or that desire or whatever. So I think that was a really interesting maneuver in terms of story and an interesting way of exploring that. 
Yeah, I thought it was really interesting too. It reminded me a little bit of The Last Duel, which we already talked about. Yes, yeah. In the sense that it suddenly opened up this whole new perspective, like because it really does put you in Fjolnir's point of view at towards the end there, where you really get a sense of his story, which from the very beginning is very different from that of Amlet. But then also like after Amlet takes his vengeance, or at least vengeance against Fjolnir's family, you see there's almost a resetting of the story. Like now again, we have another quest for vengeance that begins with this other character for whom Amlet is the aggressor who needs to die. And I thought at first, like maybe there was going to be another subversive moment on the volcano where it turns out like the quest for vengeance was actually Fjolnir's against Amlet. Right. That he was the one who was going to kill the other one. But on second thought, I think it is the better ending that they both end up dying because in the end, they kind of make the same mistake or like the same personal choice to deal with their loss or to deal with their injustice in this very vengeful, aggressive, violent way, which is almost naturally bound to self-destruction. Yeah. So in that sense, I, I was really interested how it really shows that vengeance really is this cycle of violence and that there is no way really to resolve it until everyone's basically dead. Right. I guess it also says something about the cultural norms. I think that's the part that maybe we can relate to still the most, like in our modern times, like the whole idea that we need to have some sort of claim to honor or like meaning or whatever. And the length we will go to to preserve that, like we create the story for ourselves and then we will do a lot to make sure that story makes sense rather than critically reflect on how we told that story to ourselves in the first place and how it may be mistaken or how we might have to revise it in some way. Yeah. And those stories can be incredibly strong. In a modern world, a lot of times those are kind of narratives we're constructing for ourselves and cobbling together from all these different sources or whatever. But one thing this movie does is allow you to imagine like a scenario in which everything around you is reinforcing that narrative also. Like your king father who you respect and the shaman wise elders and all these people are like feeding into that with this kind of like spiritual religious significance through the symbolism of jewelry or whatever you can imagine how gripping that kind of narrative could become and how it could like propel people into this type of behavior or like such strong beliefs that you'd just be willing to go to whatever lengths or die or do whatever it takes to to kind of accomplish these goals because you know yeah especially when you as the movie shows that everyone does this almost and that you yeah yeah. even if you are like critical of yourself like even if amlet had decided like oh maybe i'm not going to continue this quest for vengeance now but then at the same time he can't guarantee that fjolner is going to do the same so it feels like there's almost this despair to like you either have to become the aggressor in your own story or become the victim of someone else's right yeah I think that's where my main the emotional confusion comes from at the end, because there is no more moral victory, I think, when they are both on the volcano, like they've chosen their fate, they've gone on this path, and now there's like no point of return. And now it's just, they have to play it out as we know it will. Like we, we know it's not going to end well, we know it's going to end in destruction, and yet we have to witness it anyways. There's that interesting twist on top of that, though, at the very end, where you have a vision of him like ascending into Valhall, essentially, which is like 
in his mind, a fulfillment. He's reached the point. He's gone beyond. I think the challenge there is like for us as modern contemporary viewers, we're like, oh, yeah, well, we don't believe that. So all we see is two guys dying on the volcano. But I think like that being a part of the film kind of creates that weird, confusing tension in that, you know, it's not as simple as like, oh, yeah, they both seek vengeance. They both die. Vengeance is clearly bad and we should move on from that. It's also like, in a sense, the whole ideology of like, we see it at the beginning, Ethan Hawke's character, his father, I don't remember his name, but he wants to die by the sword. That's something they're actively yeah, yeah. seeking out. And so for Amleth to like die by a blade, he probably has a little bit of regret, like, oh, you know, <laughs> yeah. I died by the blade instead of like being able to go back to my family and see my children. But he sees them in a vision and he's like, oh, it doesn't really end on like a down note for him. It's he's like fulfilled this destiny in a sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the challenging things about what the film is presenting that is kind of hard to connect with. That's really the part where Eggers was trying to convey and believe that we may no longer hold, but then he tries to at the same time like depict it honestly as the character would experience, but that, and at the same time hoping that we might have a sort of meta awareness that would make us watching it more critical. But yeah, yeah that makes it difficult. Like if you compare it to, let's say, Gladiator, which also ends with this image of a warrior dying and going to heaven or like whatever the image of heaven was. But that one clearly came with what to us was also a moral victory. Like we know his sacrifice meant something good. He like he achieved something that we can relate to and that we can understand. And that's also has meaning within the world of the story. Yeah. Yeah. There's a more of an emotional connection there and a more logical connection. And that I feel was like missing a little bit at the end with this final shot where we see his perspective, but when it's clearly not our perspective. There's a sort of disconnect that happens. Yeah. It reminded me of, uh, have you played The Last of Us Part Two? I haven't, no. There's also a moment there towards the end where you also have a character that's on this quest for vengeance and without spoiling it too much, there's a scene right before the ending where she also has a chance to just give it all up. She's at home, she's with the people she loves and she has a chance to just stop, but she doesn't. And I think for a lot of people, there was also a disconnect there because they wanted the game to end there, but yet they had to continue that quest for vengeance that they probably didn't even want to go on anymore. But I think there is value there in trying to force people to go along with these paths just to see where they would lead. And in that sense, the disconnect can be like thematically meaningful because if that can be like a success, like that meaning that it's successfully like discouraged you from the whole concept of vengeance maybe like right right because it's if you compare it to like john wick like when he gets this vengeance like everyone's cheering like there's no <laughs> yeah yeah there's no disconnect there because the movie doesn't challenge its own premise and i think the northman does do that in an interesting way so in that sense i can imagine that the disconnect is intentional and you can argue like does it make for a good movie is it doesn't leave you like immediately satisfied or immediately connected to the main characters and their resolution or at least the resolution to their stories but it is certainly like an interesting watch the way eggers talks about these films is interesting too he was on wtf with mark maron recently i think it was in that interview he talks about just trying to portray these stories of these worlds without judgment so he's just trying to like portray accurately like what happened not what happened it's not literally a true story but like the worldview and the beliefs the myth without 
imposing judgment on that world from inside the film. But I think some of that just kind of has to happen naturally, either because he doesn't live in that world and doesn't really believe those things, or because we as the viewer don't live in that world. And there's a sense in which like the film isn't necessarily like a deconstruction, but like a deconstruction happens just because like we are disconnected from it. And so we can only see it through a certain lens or something like that. Not that the movie's completely uncritical. I think we've kind of established that already. But I, I don't know. I just there's an interesting pattern, especially when you look at this movie in relationship to his other movies and how he'll just kind of like build this world and find a mythology in that world. I don't want to get into spoilers for his other two films in case people haven't seen those, mm -hmm. but they're very similarly like straightforward. He just kind of like starts at a trajectory and just kind of lets that thing like play out along the myth. And there's a sort of fadedness to them that I think is very interesting and gives them like a different quality from from what I expect from a lot of contemporary stories or films. So I like this movie just from the perspective of like being able to enter into that world. And even if I couldn't fully emotionally engage with those characters, like I really like film's ability to like accurately portray or not even accurately. You can do this as much with science fiction as you can with historical examples, mm -hmm. but just like create a world that feels real. Every part of this movie, even the fantastical elements feels believable to a degree because like it's so grounded in a sense of reality or a sense of i don't know it's hard to describe it's not because it's not reality it's heightened it's mythic mm -hmm. at the same time he really does focus on getting the historical accuracy right in terms of like the nitty-gritty of like the outfits and the houses and the decorations and also the mythological aspects i wonder to what extent do you think the movie is elevated by this insane attention to detail because it really wanted to like deconstruct the image of like the, the Vikings with the horned helmets, which yes. apparently wasn't a thing. And the way we've basically constructed our own mythology of what Vikings were like. And now he's trying to sort of add nuance to that and give us a more real look at what these cultures looked like. How do you think that contributed to the experience of this story or the value of this story? I don't know. That's a hard question to answer because I think in a sense, there's almost like an inherent value to that, that I appreciate. Mm -hmm. I got something out of this movie similar to what maybe I would have gotten out of uh, watching like a really good documentary about, like if you made a documentary, a very high quality documentary about Vikings, you can't just show footage of Vikings. So you have to create yeah. a world, create an environment, show all these things and there's an aspect of that to this film where he's working with scholars, Viking scholars to like make sure that the close is exactly right and, you know, all these things. And so there's a value to that that I have interest in. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like kind of knowing this going into the movie before I even watched it, I was like, I don't know that much about Vikings besides like the cliche things that, you know, horn helmets that mm -hmm. you talked about. <laughs> yeah. Besides those things, I don't know that much. I'm curious to see what a more accurate depiction of this world actually looks like. And so that is, at least to me as a viewer, kind of inherently fascinating. But whether or not that serves the end purpose of the film or the goal of the film thematically, it's difficult to say because I, I, I guess with this film, I can't necessarily put my finger on exactly what that purpose is besides some of the things that we already talked about. And I don't know that Eggers is kind of starting out with that 
goal in mind of like, oh, this is the thing I mm-hmm. want to say. I think the interesting thing is he's approaching it more with like, this is how I'm going to do it. And then come of that, what may. I heard him talk about that he initially had no interest in Viking stories at all until he visited Iceland and he became more enamored by the landscapes and just the whole world that Vikings existed within, which I think is an interesting thought. Personally, I don't care much for historical accuracy in in movies, like unless you're depicting something like absolutely dishonestly, like I don't mind much if like the Vikings have horns or not on their helmets. Yeah, yeah. As long as the core of their culture is presented with some degree of accuracy, like I always assume whatever else serves the story, like add your own creativity. But after seeing this movie, I did start to think about the way that if you focus on all these little details, like to what extent does the sum of them become bigger than, how do you say that? The whole becomes bigger than the sum of its parts, I think. Exactly. That's what I was looking for. Because then maybe even that it works almost subconsciously, that when you have the mythology and then everything else is as accurate as possible too, that it starts to feel more sensible in a way or more wholesome. But yeah, I'm, uh, I didn't have an answer when I asked you yeah. this. But <laughs> I don't either. I have mixed feelings about the movie, about that aspect specifically, because there was a part of me where like around the midway point, I found myself kind of sitting in the theater and I was like, oh, this is really cool. I'm enjoying this. But then I was thinking about those things. I was thinking about the world and the details of the world and like, oh, it's neat to see this like weird sport game they're playing. Oh, with, yeah. You know, like that's like. <laughs> brutal lacrosse or something yeah uh brutal quidditch almost (laughs) yeah (laughs) but i was thinking about those things instead of being invested in like the emotional journey that the characters were on which generally like i would say like kind of detracts from a film like i usually want to be like invested in the story and the characters and the journey they're on but there is something cool about having that world depicted or those things I had the same feeling at the exact same point in the story because you're so connected to the quest of vengeance that when there's this sort of quieter moment of world building that you're like, okay, whatever, let's get on with the vengeance. Yeah. I just remembered a scene that we didn't talk about. This is kind of looping back to the film and whether or not it kind of has a critique of the myth. But there's that scene where he goes to get the sword and he picks it up and he fights the undead king or whoever it is Mm -hmm. and he slays him and then there's like this moment where the king disappears and there's a weird shift in perspective or reality and he's back at the king who is still a corpse and he just picks up the sword and the king just kind of like falls to dust or whatever his head falls off or something i don't remember exactly what happens but there's almost this separation that's maybe one of the few places where we're seeing what feels like a separation between like Amleth's experience of like, oh, I'm involved in this myth where I slay this undead king and take the sword. And then maybe we also see another version of that where he just grabs it out of the hands of like a rotting, dusty corpse and it falls to ashes. I don't know. Did you have any thoughts about that scene? Yeah, it it definitely is. I think the one moment where it breaks its own illusions a little bit. But I can imagine like it's the same with the earlier scene when Amleth is still young and you have his father and there's a sort of I'm not sure if they take like something or like some hallucinatory drug or something. It looks like they drink water that has like mushrooms in it or something like mm-hmm. that. I don't, I don't know. I'm sure it's an actual reference to yeah. some kind of drug or Viking ritual or something. But uh, yeah, maybe it feels like there's some that it might feel like 
they're both kind of true that they he does fight him but then they enter into this more mystical realm and then when he's completed his quest there so to say it's the world kind of reverts back to its ordinary state which in that sense both realities are true yeah yeah which you see in some other moments too when you have the last shaman who has the head of the earlier one the willem defoe's characters and there's a sense of heightened reality where he suddenly comes to life, but then it goes back to being like this corpse again. And I thought it was more like the relation between the mystical and the ordinary world that he kind of transfers in between them a little bit, or that the mystical is also just this sense of more like this state of being that sort of temporarily envelops the world and then retracts back into itself. So yeah, I guess that's kind of how I saw it. Yeah. I think there's a sense of ambiguity maybe maintained yeah i'm not sure if it's meant to make us question or make us think like oh it's all in his head and nothing that's happening here is real because i do think it clearly establishes that at least in the context of this world like the mystical is reality as well because the thing with the sword is also like it's not like he is waiting for the vengeance because he wants it to happen at this point and place yeah. like he also he literally can't pull out the sword he tries it at some point another person tries it and like can't yeah and there's this fight where he basically fights all of Jonas men with the weapon still sheathed like when he proclaims his vengeance <laughs> <Right>. and <laughs> because he can't literally he literally can't pull it out and as you said there's this other character too who tries it so there's clear like magical rules that are absolute in this world when Amlet is captured too there's the crows that kind of come in and nap at this rope until it snaps Yes, yeah. So that's some clear like intervention from gods inhabiting Spirits animals. Spirits or yeah. something, yeah. yeah. Which I think might be implied at a certain point that that's like part of, because it's implied that like Olga is from a different culture, but she also has some type of like magic or destiny or she can like speak to the earth or something. Mm -hmm. So there's an interesting like pluralism there as well, I think, where it's not just, oh, Odin is the one true God and he has all the power in this world. There's also this sense of like, oh, there's other worldviews out there as well that seem to have a certain degree of mystical power in this world too. Mm -hmm. And there's like a relationship between those things. I'm going to have to see it again because there's a lot going on and I think it's tough to wrap your head around mm -hmm. being in this kind of different environment within the film. We've talked a lot about the outdated sort of Viking beliefs that we now no longer have but do you think it also maybe captured something that we have lost today or like something that was good or better or more sensible about their culture that we today have kind of fallen out of touch with i don't know if i'd say anything specifically about viking culture at least with how it's depicted in this film it's pretty brutal yeah and nasty so i don't know if there's anything there specifically that i would point to that i think is lost i do think there's an interesting power in ritual or belief or these kinds of things that I think we maybe don't have a respect for. And I think that's part of what is interesting about this movie, at least for me, was like sitting there and being like, oh, I can on the tiniest level, like understand getting involved and caught up in that kind of narrative. Mm -hmm. That's certainly an interesting counterpoint to our modern world. I'm not going to make any kind of assertions as far as <laughs> like we need to resuscitate these kinds of rituals, in a very literal sense, people are trying to do that. I mean, you look at one of the early scenes in this film is essentially like a shamanic psychedelic ritual that's being depicted that then gives 
the character meaning in his life. Unfortunately, that meaning is then like the source of his vengeance. And he has this belief that he's like divinely the king. And so that ends up being not good, I would argue. But like there's a movement in our culture to return to this kind of thing of like, oh, psychedelic ritual or therapy or whatever used as a way to like bring a sense of meaning back into your life. And I'm not going to make claims about how productive that is or whether or not we should be doing that. But there's definitely like an interesting relationship between that and the modern world and this idea of like the potential value of myth, the pitfalls of that, certainly. Yeah. And kind of like how we construct a narrative around ourselves. So I think those things are very interesting to examine. And I think we often think we are more removed from that world than we are. So I think if there's something to learn here, it's a greater level of respect for the way in which that kind of power of narrative still influences itself upon our lives, uh, even just through the movies we watch and those kinds of things. We kind of think of ourselves as very modern, rational beings that are purely materialistic. And that might be, you know, the beliefs that we hold in our minds or culturally or whatever. But there's a distinction between like the rational beliefs that we hold and then kind of the myths that we're influenced by or or those types of things. Yeah, because you wouldn't say like the Vikings were less rational than we are today in their essence. Like we are still myth creating human beings. We still follow like our own stories. We still weave our own threads of fate, so to say. I think I would say we are just as susceptible now mm. to the kind of the same irrational things as they were. Whatever part of them was susceptible to those things is still in us and is still susceptible to being like caught up in a those kinds of things, mm -hmm. I think is how I would say it. Mm -hmm. One thing that I was really fascinated by was the whole, just the sheer focus on physicality, especially Alexander Skarsgård, the way he portrayed Amlet, it was just so visceral and he really embodied that character with his whole body, like especially during the initial assault on that village where they're all roaring like bears or wolves, or I'm, I don't remember exactly what it was, but there's this interesting focus on being in touch with your own body and your own inner strength and sort of being connected to every fiber of like muscle and that kind of like bodily energy. And then also when you see him assault the village, I love the way he's like, he's not like heroically posing and making like these pretty looking moves, but he really see us like kind of hunched over, like more like a beast or some brute who's all up in his warrior energy and he's kind of going at it. And on the other hand, you have arguably like maybe the feminine aspect of that is then captured with Olga, who's more like, how do you say it, almost peacefully connected to the earth, while at the same time she, I think she at some point says like when Hamlet breaks people's bodies, she kind of breaks their minds. And so she works in a different way, but she also has this very bodily connection to the physical surroundings in a way that Hamlet also has, although even though he's more sort of brute forcing it, she's more going about it differently. But yeah, I, I was interested in what you thought maybe on the way this film also uses the literal human body and the connection to the physical space to portray something that maybe we today are not as connected to as we used to be because we are far more lethargic now than we were back yes. then, probably. We're definitely more disconnected from physicality. Or like, I really like Marshall McLuhan's idea of like technology as extensions of man 
man meaning humanity. So a wheel is an extension of our foot. Screens are extensions of our eye or whatever. Each technology extends some kind of aspect of our body, our physicality, our touch, our sense in some way. Books and writing becomes an extension of our mind. And I think as we move into this modern, hypermodern world where we're surrounded increasingly by technology, like we become disconnected from our bodies because those things move out away from us. And there's also just so much around us. You know, I was thinking about watching some of the rituals in this movie that they depict, like dancing and drumming and some of these types of things. Like the modern equivalents that we would have of those outside of continued religious tradition would be like concerts, people going to a club, you know, cinema, I think is certainly one where you get like a bunch of people together and they kind of partake in an experience in a collective unison. Sports is another example where you would have dancing and chanting and all these things. We have remnants of these things, but there's definitely much less emphasis placed on that. And I think because of everything else that we have in our world, you know, we're drawn away from our physicality, not just on a practical sense, but in terms of our self-image is like no longer even just rooted in our body, but extends into like the internet and social media and like all these things. So there's modern contemporary practices like mindfulness or yoga. Well, I mean, those are all rooted in ancient traditions, but modern expressions of those things that mm -hmm. are can be helpful in terms of like grounding and bringing yourself back into yourself a little bit. And that's one of the things I like about being in nature as well is this sense of like, it almost recontextualizes you more into your body by removing some of those distractions of technology. That's a rant about technology and not this movie. <laughs> but I guess that's the contrast of like a primitive world that we're seeing depicted here and the modern landscape. Yeah, I think the primitive world, there was a much bigger presence of like the wilderness and like yes. the nature in the sense of like this, this is something other than us. Whereas now I feel more like wherever you are, you feel like you're in the human world. And yes. that's why being in nature can be such a strange experience because when you're in the mountains, like you feel like these mountains aren't here for me, like they aren't created by humanity. They're not skyscrapers that have functions or like boats or ships or airplanes or whatever. It naturally impresses upon you like certain smallness. It reminds you of your own physicality because you're disconnected from like this symbolic part of your brain like that projects those technologies on everything. And so you're more aware of like the acutely physical, like if you're on a mountain, like, you know, if I'm going to fall off, I'm going to die. If I'm going to stay here too long, I'm going to starve. There's a much strongest sense of your animalness almost that's being reawakened there, which I think is something interesting that we no longer tend to cultivate as much as we probably used to back then because there are these spirit animals like we see in the first scene they're trying to like emulate the wolves and then later they're also like emulating animals and then there's the ravens and some other that I might be forgetting but yeah that's something that I did like there's a more naturalistic philosophy to the way their worldview was oriented I guess I don't think that was supposed to be a conscious decision on their part. Like, right, yeah. We are deliberately like attuning to nature or all these elements, but because they did, simply didn't know anything else, that was just the world they inhabited. And I think for us now, that's kind of different because we do have a sense of this different, more human world that we have created for ourselves and that nature is kind of pushed out of as this thing that we have conquered or dominated or at least like have set some boundaries against. 
But I do think that that's also what we're maybe experiencing some drawbacks from, right? especially when it comes to our individual state of being also. There's this running joke that you always see, like, I can't remember the last time that I wasn't at least a little bit tired. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I feel that that's the sense like that captures a lot of people's state of being right now. I feel like there's a lot of people who are kind of like sitting around too much, myself included, like having mild complaints about lower back issues or maybe repetitive strain injuries from computering too much or just feeling tired all the time, not because we're doing too much, but because we are actually doing too little physically. So yeah, in that sense, I think that this film was an interesting encapsulation of a certain physicality and more like animalness that maybe we've fallen out of touch with while also showing like the extremes of it and the way, especially if you twist it around into your own little narrative, then it again goes too far and it becomes uh, destructive again. So it's, again, it's not, it's not a film to be taken literally. Like I'm not saying we should have these literal. You're not saying we go back to uh, uh... (laughs) like, that goes back to like, it presents something while also assuming that we're going to have some natural criticisms about what is portrayed here. And I think the film manages to walk that balance pretty neatly. Yeah. So yeah, overall, I'd say it's a fascinating film. Yeah, I agree. To just add a little bit to what you were saying, the worldview that it's portraying, it's rooted in that naturalism, but there's also this sense of like transcending to something beyond. And I think in a sense, in a modern world, we, our worldview has collapsed in both directions. We separate ourselves from nature, from that naturalistic world. And we also have no sense of there being anything that we can like transcend towards. Like in this world, they're dogs at the beginning becoming men, then becoming like God kings at the end in Valhall or whatever. And their life on earth is this process in between that. And in the modern world, I think that all collapses into we're humans. That's the extent of it. So in a sense, that is also the loss of narrative and the loss of myth and the loss of like that's the postmodern world where it's like oh we've deconstructed this Mm -hmm. story that we're a part of where we're coming out of something and going towards something and so i think in this film it's really fascinating to enter back into that world with the kind of commitment that eggers brings to it and try to believe it in the way that the characters believe it and try to like enter into that myth and that narrative and that world again Mm -hmm. and see like what is engaging about that and arresting and the part of that that kind of like grabs you in some way and then also to see the part of it that is barbaric and that we've gladly moved on from yeah definitely uh, shows you like some elements that are worth bringing along or maybe some parts of us that as i said at the beginning that it's trying to explore like what we are by showing who we've been and then so there's you can see similarities you can see differences but at the same time there's also I think through a film like this, that you can have this interesting act of exchange. Like you can see the things that are the same and that are still problematic maybe in some way, or maybe things that are worth looking out for, worth reflecting on as an individual being. But you can also maybe get a sense of, okay, maybe we've let go of some things already, like culturally that maybe might be good. Like the whole idea of birthright is also a thing here like he's supposed to be king he's supposed to be like an honorable man and i think now we've by and large deconstructed that to some extent that we no longer have this insane cultural focus on a man's honor and his shame if he doesn't live up to that 
But at the same time, you can also see like you can also use it as a sort of anchoring points. Like, okay, maybe there were some also some parts of that culture, some connections there that maybe you have fallen out of touch with that you need to reclaim. Like maybe for me, at least that was the kind of physicality, like the reminder that, okay, it's also important to stay connected to the earth, stay connected to your body and find a way to bring some physicality into your life. And in that sense, I think uh, when you have this really historically accurate film, then you can really have this interesting engagement that other films wouldn't necessarily allow. Great. I think that's a great place to stop. Unless there's anything else uh, you wanted to add? I was maybe going to talk about the long takes. Yeah, I also wanted to mention that. Mm -hmm. It's a funny counterpoint to 1917, uh, which is an exclusive episode that you can listen to on Nebula. But in our 1917 episode, we talked about how the unbroken take of that film sometimes feels a little forced in places, like it would have just made more sense to cut in some places. And I was thinking about that discussion that we had after watching this, because this is a movie that employs these long takes, Mm -hmm. but it's done in a very like unintrusive way. I think like it wasn't showy. Like there was a lot of moments where I just suddenly I realized like, oh, this shot has just been happening for like over five minutes now or something. And it's not presenting itself as like, oh, we're going to do this big thing. It was just an aspect of the film. So yeah, it just, it made for an interesting counterpoint. Yeah, I think it because the camera didn't follow along as much as it went from one frame and then transitioned into another and then into another. And so there were moments where I became aware of the long shot and then I kind of forgot about it as it moved on. Or I was like, is this still the same shot? Did it transition somewhere? And it never went on long enough that I felt compelled to start looking for it, like the hidden cuts or something. But yeah, it's definitely an uh, interesting addition to the discussion we already had in... uh, our exclusive episode on Nebula. And if you want to listen to that exclusive bonus episode and you enjoy the show, be sure to check out Nebula, where you can listen to all our episodes early and without any ads, and you'll get this bonus episode about 1917. Right now, the best way to get access to Nebula, if you don't have it, is by signing up for Curiosity Stream, which comes with a free Nebula subscription. You can go to curiositystream.com slash cinema of meaning or follow the link in the show notes to check that out. And we'll talk to you again next time.